Hi, I'm Matt Kierkegaard. This week on Beer as a Conversation, we continue the series of interviews that we recorded during our swing through Sydney's Inner West last December, and we meet Topher Bame from Wildflower Brewing and Blending. In an increasingly congested craft beer market, it can be hard for a business to be unique, but Topher is doing a great job of standing out from the pack. Wildflower isn't a brewery. Topher works with his friends down the road at Batch Brewing to make the wort he uses before taking it to his Marrickville warehouse where he ferments it with wild yeasts that he has foraged throughout New South Wales, selecting and propagating the ones he thinks will create signature beers. Aging them in oak, Topher then blends the beers before bottling and releasing them to the public. This is a fascinating chat with a genuinely engaging new brewer. Enjoy the conversation. Now we're headed to Wildflower, and we're meeting up with uh, Topher Bame, who is the... What are you, Topher? Because like, I'm looking around, and every other brewery we've been in, we've seen lots of uh, shiny stainless, and all I see is a whole lot of wood. I actually don't have a name, like a, a role, rather, on my business card, because I'm not really sure <laughs> what I am. Um, I guess you could say brewer, blender, guy that labels everything and sends it out as well. I mean, it's... It's a small business, jack of all trades, but I guess um, I haven't been brewing a lot of my own wort, so calling myself a brewer can be a bit misleading um, to some people. Even calling this space a brewery is misleading, but um, because we don't make our own wort here. But uh, they're my recipes, so I guess I could still call myself a brewer. I'm not sure. <laughs> you call yourself whatever you like. Um, this website started off as some guy in his underpants.com, and uh, we, we've sort of uh, moved on. Look at us now. <laughs> We've got merch. <laughs> um, well, maybe you can, because uh, the, the first time I remember meeting you uh, in person, I think we'd exchanged emails, was at the Charlie Bamforth thing about two years ago when we did a Radio That's Brews right. News. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your background in brewing and how you came to open Wildflower. Yeah, I um, came into brewing through Batchering Company. So um, I was finishing up my degree uh, here in Sydney. I, I'm American, but I studied my undergraduate here in, in Australia. Degree in what, sorry? Um, physics, astronomy. I, I can see. Okay. I, I, I just wanted to put that on the record because, you know, people might have maybe assumed you were a brewer. Well, that's my, been my only professional job. So I feel like, in a way, I'm more of a brewer than I am what, whatever I studied. But physics was a really good um, intro into brewing. It's a problem-solving degree really um you have to think on your feet and you have to solve problems uh, that you've never seen before with a tool set that you've been given so i was heading into the academic realm and then you know going into phd and that kind of thing but the guys at batch who were friends of mine through playing lacrosse um, chris and andrew they were opening up this small brewery that they were going to call batch at the time and they said look we really need some help um, I was doing a lot of home brewing through uni, which is a common way to be able to stay through universities by uh, making your own beer instead of paying for it. But um, they asked me if we could, uh, if I could help them out, and I did. And it just became really a lot more attractive to be brewing than to be studying. So I started off as their first employee um, and stayed with them until I left to start this place. There was a bit of a gap, maybe nine months. I went, oh, ten months. It was in Europe for a while, but um, kind of helped them develop a lot of their core recipes that they have now and um, got a lot of chance to play around and do kind of whatever I wanted there. So it was a, a fantastic introduction into the into the industry. But um, that's kind of the background. So from when they started in 2013, um, December 2013, to 
whenever I started this place. Um, 20, I guess late last year I finished. So late 2016 was with them, yeah. But what, you've committed yourself to a university degree in something that's not, for people like myself, um, easy, um, physics or uh, astronomy or you know, anything science and yet you've completed that and then you've gone into what is a very non-related industry. What was it that saw you have the epiphany for, for beer and decide that that was where you wanted to make your life? This is a bit of a tangent answer, I guess, but I don't feel that we should be going to university to get jobs. I think that you should be going to university to learn. And I wanted to learn about the world and the laws of the universe. And so that was what I enjoyed the most, really. Um, so having um, a role there um, and and um, studying physics was really just... Uh, continuation of my desire to keep learning um the brewing industry the the translation into that is is pretty simple i mean the the amount of different styles that you can make um the just general innovation that was sort of being offered in the craft beer industry was a complete um and easy sort of translation from that and there's a whole new learning curve for me to learn and I'm, I'm an avid learner. I love doing things with my hands. So um, it was, it, it fit. I mean, for me, they, they're, they're part and parcel. Um, so, yeah, I think if, if, any, if anything, it was just um, a desire to continue to, to create and to learn and to understand. So, yeah. So you're brewing at Batch. Um, you decided to go out on your own. Now, we, we don't see a brewery here. So who makes your work and, and, and what is your approach? What is the wildflower approach to, uh, to making beer? Yeah, so when we started out, well, the, the approach is, is very simple. I mean, the approach is to make drinkable, delicate, nuanced beers. Um, that's our only focus. Um, everything else outside of that is purely just an attempt to get to that stage. The process is a little bit different than, than um, the majority of other breweries. We sort of followed a method or a model that was sort of made made um, popular or sort of possible or thought about by a brewery in the States called the Rare Barrel. So instead of us purchasing a brew house and making all of our wort on site, we do what what is called wort contracting. So there's a number of breweries in the area, as you know, and I guess the, the point of this podcast is that there's a number of breweries set up right around the inner west. And so instead of purchasing the capital investment of a brew house and making um, batches of wort uh all the time for myself, um, I go around to uh, batch specifically at the moment and hire time on their brew house when they're not using it. So the majority of um, contract operations, I guess, to separate this, um, the, for, for a contract brewer, a gypsy brewer, the beer is brewed at a different brewery as well as fermented at that other brewery. There's, a, there's an ATO distinction there. Um, that, that makes these things a little bit different. So for us, um, the, bat, the word is brewed there but brought over here. And that's a much easier um, sort of relationship to have with a brewery as well because we don't tie up any of their fermenter space. The only thing that we're buying the time on is, is the brew house, which it itself is in the majority of craft breweries around the country are not used 24-7. So um, we have our own fermenters here, um, and it's pretty necessary for us to do our own fermentations here because we use yeast that would um, likely be uh, very um, perilous for any other brewery to have, for a clean brewery to have in their site because it might infect the rest of their brewery. So the process starts over at Batch. Um, they, make a re- they make a wort based to my recipe, and then it's um, knocked out through the heat exchange into a sanitized stainless steel tote. And we drive it over here on the back of a truck. 
and lift it up on a forklift and gravity feed it into a um, very shallow, wide, 3,000 liter um, X dairy sort of um, vat. It's um, really specific that we like our fermentations to be shallow. Uh, we don't like our beer under too much hydrostatic pressure. It reduces the amount of esters that are created through primary fermentation. Um, and the beer spends about eight to ten days in, in, in there. This is the Golden Amber, um, our two main beers that we send out. And then, they, and then they get racked to X-Wine French oak barrels. And they go to the cellar and they stay there for any number of months until they get chosen, I guess. Um, but we can talk about blending, I guess, a little bit later. So do you inoculate with your own yeast or have you got your own uh, cultivar that, that you use or what, what's the process there? Absolutely, yeah. So we have what we call a house culture. Um, our house culture is a mixed culture um, of a uh, commercial strain of Saccharomyces as well as a bunch of other yeast, um, Saccharomyces, Britannomyces, Lactobacillus, Pediococcus, all of the organisms that we've harvested, foraged, um, wrangled, whatever you like to say, from the environment here in New South Wales. So uh, being American, I came to Australia and was making beers and really w- was enjoying them. But after a while, I decided and sort of thought about the fact that I probably w- wanted to make something that I wouldn't be able to replicate if I just picked up and moved back home. I wanted to make a beer that had a sense of place. And so this is a big difference, I think, about what, what we do specifically. I mean, even outside of the barrel aging is our commitment to using um, truly wild yeast, yeast from from here in New South Wales. So we we collected yeast off of flowers um, from spontaneous fermentations and off the skins of fruit. And I conducted a bunch of small-scale fermentations at home um, until I built this culture. You know, a lot of things didn't work, but the ones that did, I sort of continued to compile together. And I built this culture of, of yeast that was from this place that would make beer that is a representation of this place. And when we made our first beers here at Wildfire, um, that yeast culture was mixed with um, some some commercial Saccharomyces from you know the Saison Dupont strain um, specifically. And that culture, every single time, goes in and ferments um, all of the beers that we send to trade. Uh, we do a couple beers here just for just for the house, um, for the brewery, you know, to per- serve over the bar that that aren't made with our yeast. Um, but everything that goes out to trade. Um, everything you'd see is fermented with this house culture. And so when the wort comes over, it goes into that 3,000-liter fermenter, and the, that wort is given um, our house culture, and it ferments there for you know the 10 days. And then at the end of that, when the beer is racked into barrel or goes to packaging in the case of the table beer, we collect the yeast off of the bottom of that fermenter and save that until the next batch, which might be two or three days later. We, we, we brew religiously fortnightly um, in order to keep the house culture alive. So it sounds very much like and very much is similar to um, a sourdough culture. If anyone has a leaven at home that they maintain or, or their mother, um, it's, it's very much the same thing. That, 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 that culture goes through um, all these fermentations and it's sort of throughout um, every single beer that we have. When you go to your website to buy a beer, um, you've got all of the different batches uh, and they're, they're dated and they've, they've got a batch number. What's the batch-to-batch variation like? I'll stop you there and say they're blends. Um, so we brew what we say in batches because you, we bring in a batch of wort from batch. Um, but uh, we bring in a batch of wort and that beer then gets fermented together and then gets split up to different um, barrels. The way that it's packaged, though, is different than that. We don't just then take, go into the cellar and pull out those you know, five or six barrels that came from one batch and put them together again. Instead, um, we sit down um, and look at 
all of the barrels that we have of every age. Um, and we select only a very small number of barrels of different ages to blend together in order to get the length and the subtlety and the complexity that we're after in our beers. So each blend um, is a different uh, representation of our cellar at that time. So uh, we'll sit down and we have um, barrels that might be, you know, 12 to 14 months old. And we have barrels that are three to four months old. But together, some of that um, older stock might make uh, a really nice back end, um, a nice creaminess for, for the end of the palate, where the younger stuff might be giving you some really fresh, um, funky aromatics or some, some things that are memorable of, of clean beer because we still like clean, fresh beer. And um, Luke, my barrel manager, and I will sit down and, and we'll sort of assess each barrel for the qualities that it's showing, what it's missing, um, and we'll attempt to put together two or three barrels um, from the entire cellar, you know, it's sort of 100 barrels strong now, um, two or three barrels that work really well together and that complement each other in, in different ways so that you have um, this sort of more complex thing in the glass. Um, so each blend is a different is, is the next iteration of that. Now altogether the two barrel the two beers, the amber and the gold, are sold under the same label. So um, it's you know it's still amber um, even though when it's blend three or when it's blend eight. And we'd like there to be a consistency among those and that's what we attempt to do as well at the blending table. Not only were we searching for the best representation of our cellar, but we're also searching for something that's true to what we've put out in the past. I don't want punters or I don't want any, any customers to feel like they're taking a gamble the next time they buy another blend of our beer. In fact, I'd want them to be really confident and say, actually, this is really interesting. I'd like to see what small variation might have showed up in the cellar this month. Um, so, um, yeah, the, 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 those are the difference um, for, for the numbers. Now, through the miracle of modern technology, we've just taken a break. You've uh, charged our glasses and having told us about your culture and all of the varieties of uh, yeast that are in there, you've now gone and poured us a Pilsner. Now, talk us through that. Yeah, it does seem a bit disparate, I guess. But it's not like a Pilsner that I've uh, tried recently. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I hope that's a good thing. But, um, yeah, we... Let's see. I, I'm pretty obsessed with lager. I think it's a good place to start. Um, my surname itself and my family heritage is Czech. Um, a long time ago. We've sort of been in the States for five generations before then. But um, I've always been fascinated, I am fascinated with these cultures of, of beer brewing that work with open fermentation. Um, for me, it kind of boils down to three. You have Franco-Belgian styles, um, and that, you know, the, you imagine um, Saison Dupont fermented in these square fermenters under less pressure, um, you get more esters. Same thing with British-style ales um, that are open fermented, and you get that beautiful um, fruity esters through open fermentation um, that you don't get through a closed, even in the same yeast strains. And interestingly, Czech Pilsner is, is a very rustic style of lager that, that it itself was fermented um, open uh, traditionally. Um, they were actually put into these big wide vats and allowed to start um, open fermenting before being dropped into big fooders um, underneath Pilsen and aged in oak. Now, now when you say open fermented, yes. you don't mean uncultured, like you, you, you don't mean... Spontaneous fermented. No, absolutely. Open fermentation, from, from my definition and the way that I speak about it, is zero pressure. Um, so not, there's no airlock. Um, that's, for me, the, in my experiments with it, have created huge differences in mouthfeel, no matter what you do. Um, you get a creamy, you get a bigger, broader mid-palate for me. And so um, 
that's what I'm talking about when I talk about open fermentation. And indeed, our beers here go through an open ferment for their for their first part of their primary. So the 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 vat is closed to the outside environment, as in things can't fall in, um, but it's open such that. Uh, CO2 can blow out. So, I mean, it's, it's not sealed, let's yep. say, but it's, you, you, things can't drop into it. Um, so Czech Pilsner has sort of uh, been very curious to me for, for a while um, because of the, the multi-flavors that you get without it being sweet. And um, it's um, this beer that we decided to make here is one that I sort of play around with um, just time to time in order to have on, on tap um, we call it lager beer because it's a very, very simple beer at the end of the day. Um, but we open ferment it inside a puncheon. So we have a 500-liter barrel that we've converted to have a plate trailer inside of it. Um, and we bring, uh, we do a triple-step infusion mash um, to a New South Wales grain. Um, this isn't, you know, any floor-malted special, special vireman, vireman malt. This is just what we have. Um, but it goes through a pretty intensive mash. Um, we hop it very well with, with um, Czech saws, and then it gets brought over here and inoculated with a pure culture lager strain. I mean, there's not any of my house culture in that. Um, well, there shouldn't be, at least. Um, it is difficult to make clean beers in, in this space. But um, it gets brought over here, and it gets put directly into this 500-liter fermenter, um, well, barrel, that has been waxed on the inside, um, a la the pitch inside of the 800-liter um, fooders that um, Pilsner Urquell used to use um, and uh, it's sanitized and the wort is brought in it's inoculated with, a, wa- with um, a lager yeast and then at the top of the bung I basically just leave entirely open um, for, the, for, for the remainder of primary fermentation and so it spills out everywhere the Krausen just goes mad um, there's a, there's a um, we haven't really done it yet much through, through summer so I'm interested to see how Love how much the flies are going to love it. Um, we might need to make something a little bit cleaner um, for them so that they don't get inside the barrel. Um, but uh, it spills out everywhere, and um, the beer is allowed to be more estuary. It's allowed to be a little um, broader across um, some of the, the mid-palate characteristics because it's not put into an airlock. It's not fermented under, under pressure. There's no spunding valve. Um, after primary fermentation finishes, there's no diacetyl rest on this beer. We go straight down to crashing temperatures. So we'll just slowly tick it down over about a week from primary fermentations at 11 degrees, and we'll tick it down to about four, which is the coldest I can get it inside that barrel because uh, it's not, you know, the barrel isn't, isn't made for, for lagering, really. Um, so uh, it stays down there for about six weeks, um, and then we package it directly into keg with um, just a little bit of extra priming sugar and the same yeast, and it referments in keg, which again I think is another thing that helps with um, some mid mid palate broadness. Um, but the attempt, all in all, with a beer is is a sort of similar thing. I'm not trying to stick my head in the sand and say how did, you know, I want to make beers traditionally and hi- historically. Instead, I want to say, well, how did people express lager before? it was completely a sanitary process. I mean, sometimes I find German lager to be too linear. It's too precise. Um, there's no character of whoever was making it on that day. And I really like that. I think that's something that you can taste in, in certain beers, um, in certain styles, is, is the, 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 the small variation that you get through environmental changes or whether or not it was a good day for the brewer that day or not. And I think that that's, that's what we're after in this, in this industry. You know, it's almost boring when everything's the exact same every single time. I mean, we want consistency in a house flavor, but maybe not, um, 
you know, a little bit of um, variation, a little bit of character is good, I think, as well. Now you guys are sitting here with goofy grins on your face and uh, not doing any work. You're just sitting there drinking beer. Uh, Prof, have you got a question? I do, actually, Matt. Look, Topher, as much as um, I could talk... Um, and listen, I could actually listen to you talk about this Pilsner for the next hour and a half, but I'm, uh, I'm sure our listeners probably are aware that uh, I guess the ales and the, the, the blending and that sort of thing is really what you're, what you're really made your name with. You, you spoke a little bit about uh, Luke and as the, the barrel manager. Talk us through the process of um, checking the barrels. How often do we do it? Is there meticulous note taking or is it a gut feel kind of thing or a, a little from both? Definitely a little a bit of everything. Um, it's a good question, and we're still sort of working with how we feel like the best way of sampling the barrels, the best way of tasting the barrels, and the best way of blending is. Really, I'll, I'll, we'll get to your question, but in a roundabout way, I'll say that we've been doing this for about a year now, and um, that means that we are hugely on the back foot when it comes to blending um, in, in beer or in wine. People who are really master blenders have been doing it for dozens and, and dozens and decades of years. So... Um, We've, we're very much still learning. I'll, I'll say that as a caveat at first. Um, but yeah, so about every month, as I was saying before, I sort of pick up where I left off when I was talking about the, the production of the beer. The beer, the golds and the ambers um, go through primary fermentation in that stainless steel tank, and then they go to the barrels. And in the barrels is where the house culture really gets to show its flexates muscles, let's say. Um, the, the, the pediococcus starts to get to work and starts to bring these really broad acidic flavors to the beer, as well as the Brettanomyces starts to take up hold inside the barrel as well as through the, the, the beer and starts to express itself. And it's, in our house culture, Brett is, is quite fruity, it's quite spicy, instead of being your traditional ho- horsehair sort of uh, blanket um, goatee Brettanomyces, um, which was another reason that we wanted to find our own, whole other story. So we get these really complex, long chain, um, I call them arduous fermentations, and really brilliantly um, on the wall of Cantillon, if you've ever been there, is, is a French quote that says, time does not respect what is done without him. And so we put the beer in the barrel and we let the fermentations happen. And instead of being on a production schedule and saying, okay, I put that beer in five months ago, it better come out this next month. Um, instead, we look at the barrels for their own um, qualities and where each barrel's fermentation is. So depending on whether that barrel is a second-use barrel or a first-use barrel or fifth-use barrel or um, it, what, whether it was the first barrel that was rocked out, r- racked out of the tank versus the last one, you're going to get small variations in, in each barrel regardless of the batch. So each month when we sit down to make our blends, we take samples from all of them. And physically, that they either looks like us walking around and making notes of every single, okay, we have 60 barrels of gold, let's say. So um, we make notes of which barrel numbers um, are full of which, which gold. And then we sit down with our little glasses, pull, you know, six, 50, 60 mil samples. Um, we'll run tests for sugar um, and pH on them to see how the continuation of those fermentations is going. Um, but most importantly, we, we assess them for their qualities and, and the things that they're lacking at that time. So physically, it just looks like all those um, tables, are, those glasses are, are on the table. And if you follow us on Instagram, it's generally on my story because I just kind of sit down and laugh every single time we blend and think like, this is actually my job. Like I'm sitting here tasting all of these beers. Um, it does sound sort of candid and fun, but it's a, it is a like, 
it's a very nerve-wracking day every single time because um, what we put together then is going to sit in barrel or in bottle for um, for someone if they sell it for five to ten years. So uh, don't any mistakes that I make there can become compounded throughout the t- time. So um, we look at uh, each of the barrels for for um, whatever they have um, and like I was saying, sort of put a couple together that we that we like. Um, and then over the next couple of days, we'll pull the beer out of those barrels, blend them together into a, into a blending tank. Um, we'll add a small amount of priming sugar as well as our house culture of yeast again. And we'll package those beers through a um, gravity filler. Um, sort of the beers are still, so gravity filler wine head, um, six, six head wine filler and in, into bottle and then the bottles are set down on their side for about 8 to 10 weeks um, of reconditioning and re-fermentation before they're sold so that's the sort of overall process I feel like there was some part of that question that I missed in terms of the blending or the assessing of it or what's important well more I guess how do you track um, yeah so I have a pretty intense spreadsheet I mean I did study physics um, why doesn't that surprise <laughs> anyone at this table um, so we're not exhaustive. There's certainly more tests that we could do on each of the barrels. Um, but uh, we have a spreadsheet that keeps track of what's in everything, how many times each barrel has been used, um, when it was racked, whether it was cleaned or not, all these kinds of things. Um, and they are, um, we use that. But for blending, we actually don't look at that at all. We look at a, at a, at a notebook that I have that has just numbers and, and flavors. Um, so. We never blend, um, we blend blind, I guess, in the sense that I don't know which ages are in which barrels. Um, so I don't write on the, on the, on each glass, this is a, you know, from, this is a three month old gold. We, uh, that's totally blind. So the, we do keep track, but the blending is totally, totally sensory. And that's, uh, basically an analog or a sort of carry on from the way that we developed our house culture. Um, the house culture has never been plated and analyzed for how many ever di- different strains of whatever it has in there. Um, it's just what um, I like to continue working with. What we what we like create good um, fermentations, and so we keep the the yeast from the good fermentations. And for me, it's all about that sensory. I mean, it could it could have fifty five strains of Saccharomyces and twenty million of Brettanomyces in there. If it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter. Um, however many different strains you have or where you got your culture, um, the only thing that matters to me is its qualities. Is it drinkable? Is it balanced? Is it enjoyable for someone who maybe is never uh, is not into beer and that's that those are things that i think about they're far more important than the than the numbers of it what about actually sourcing the barrels where do you get them from and how do you um treat them when they come in here or at least select them so that you know that you've got the closest thing that you could have to a blank canvas because there's a lot of um, potential bugs and other variations that you could possibly pick up from the barrel itself well firstly we're pretty lucky in australia to have a burgeoning wine sort of small scale wine um, industry Um, and there's a lot of small winemakers that are making incredible wines uh, in new south wales in our state um, that uh, have to rotate through barrels and so it's it's my pleasure to take those barrels off of their hands um, but they buy a very very good oak they buy great barrels um, and they keep good good care of them and so we're lucky in Australia to I'm lucky at least to have relationships with these people um, who look after their equipment and even when they're finished with it um, in terms of you know that they need to bring in new oak so they have to rotate out old oak um, that the barrels are still in very very good nick it's something that um, I've noticed and I talk about more and more with people back home or in different countries um, who are using barrels for beer and they just don't get the same quality of oak that we do so 
we avoid a lot of problems um, because we can buy direct and we buy um, thing oak that is in, in really good nick. I'll get to the second part of the question, but before I say that, I'll say that all of the information that you've just asked is on our is on our blog. So I'm a pretty I'm a pretty oh, podcast though. No, no, yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. I will, but but um, if someone is really interested in getting a full um, understanding of how we work with barrels or or how we source them or how we pick them, um, that's all been really well covered in a long series, a long a long blog post that I call. Uh, a blog post in a series that I'll call process we sort of work through different elements of our process that are maybe a little bit different than other breweries um, and focus in on them and say this is how I work with this you know I was taught to do all these things by people who freely gave me information um, in the brewing industry and I'm not going to be the the, the stopper of that if people have given me information it's my sort of duty to pass that on to someone else who has an interest in it so um, very quickly we buy only um, X wine French oak barrels so no no, no spirit barrels in here um, and no American oak, no Hungarian oak. Uh, that's really important for us um, because we want neutral oak. Uh, I never want the flavor of whatever was in the barrel before to influence the product. Um, our beers uh, are very, very light. We, we, we attempt to build complexity by taking things away rather than adding them. We don't add any spices. Um, we don't put any botanicals in them. Um, every once in a while we put some fruit in there, but that's a different story. Um, the attempt with the, the golden amber is is to make something that's an expression of that house culture. The barrel is just the best vessel for that. There's a small um, microoxidation that happens over time that can continue these long fermentations, um, as well as the barrel then picking up and being sort of home to or harboring over time our house culture itself. So the barrels become um, very much uh, as a, a sort of continuation or propagation of of our house culture so um, at some stage once we have our full cellar and we're not bringing any, any new barrels um, it's very likely we won't even have to pitch any I mean we, 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 we still will but we wouldn't have to pitch any bugs per se um, because the barrels would be so laden with them that they'll they'll lend the house culture flavor to any beer that we put into it. We're under the flight path here in Marrickville it's a very hot day uh, the climate here is certainly not what it would be in France or Belgium where some of these other brewers are that you've taken inspiration from what kind of effect does that climate have on the 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 barrels here and is that a problem or have you made it an asset how do you how do you work with that let's say both it's both a problem and an asset I like to work with nature rather than domineer her Um, I think that's that's kind of the point of of some of the ways that we that we work with the beer and the barrels Uh, however um, when it's a 40 degree day in Sydney, um, I'm not going to let her get the beer that cold, that warm rather. Um, so uh, the cellar is insulated um, on the back and across the top, and then there's drapes um, there as well. And legitimately, the air conditioner is getting put in tomorrow. <laughs> um, blowers are being put in um, inside that space, and then the drapes will be able to come down and maintain the temperature um, inside that cellar to be something that's much more hospitable for um, for beer fermentations and rather than making vinegar. Um, when, when you start to get too hot, Acetobacter starts to work really quickly, even with small amounts of oxygen, and you can lose barrels daily um, by acetic acid production, which is hugely and intensely an off flavor in, in beer. So um, we don't uh, we, we're not in the business of making vinegar. Um, so last summer um, we. Uh, all of our barrels, we had a very small barrel stock as of last summer, and they were all in the back um, where we do our 
we are in our warm room, but at that stage it was a cool room, um, and we had them all um, air conditioned throughout last summer. And then once it starts cooling off in in the sort of March or April, when the nighttime temps go back under twenty degrees, um, I like to start working with the environment, and let things speed up a little bit. Um, as long as the beer is you know not getting itself above sort of twenty two, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, but uh, through the winter, once it starts cooling off, we, we wouldn't need the, the, the sort of air conditioner anymore or the, the cellar to be um, kept at a certain temperature. And through the winter, I'll allow that as well. I let the barrels get nice and cold, and it slows down certain fermentations, but other ones are expressive in different ways. So I do like to work with it in, in other ways. But, yeah, no, it's certainly been at the top of my mind, and it's been a big ticket item um, that we've known we've needed to, to put in for a while. And so um, I'm very relieved to have those uh blowers and the air conditioning coming tomorrow um but uh yeah I, I i guess it's a bit of both in terms of working with as well as um engineering around or again i don't stick my head in the sand i'm not going to let my beers go go totally acidic just for the sake of not using air conditioning <laughs> tofa i love the concept of uh, of working with uh mother nature rather than domineering her uh, and you spoke before about uh, or likened the process to uh, you know, a mother yeast for a, for a sourdough. It was my understanding that like quite a few breweries, if they re-harvest and re-pitch their yeast, will get maybe seven, eight, maybe ten before it starts to mutate and then doesn't do what they want it to do anymore, so they need to, to go fresh. Is it actually the opposite for you? Do you? Does it keep developing or does it maintain? Or at what point do you say, okay, that's, we've done what we can with that, we need to start again? It's the exact same, but when you look at it from a different point of view, it means something totally different. Some people call that mutation. In mixed, in mixed culture fermentation, we call that drift. Um, and drift isn't a bad thing. Some of the flavors that are expressed in our house culture now weren't there six months ago, and I love those flavors. How can I say, how can I freeze my culture in time and say, that's it, you've done all of the um, evolution that I want you to do, um, stop. Um, but, but, what if, but what if it's really, really, really good? Then it'd probably only get better. <laughs> we have no backup. We have no backup. I mean, there's, there, there is, there is, our yeast is not banked anywhere, um, except in all of the barrels. Um, every time we use it, it goes, all of it goes into the fermenter, um, and then we collect at the end. I, th- it's not a risk for me. I, I'm, it's, it's, it's the way that I want the yeast to work i mean she the, our yeast are our number one employees like they are day in and week in and week out they're the best ones that are that are working here they're totally a part of the process and so um i can't just order new ones like not only did i not get them that way but they're like you know my children like they well not quite i do have, i do have a daughter she's a little more important than my yeast but um but at the same time i mean they're it's it's not something I want to swap around for. So it, it's 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 purely an approach point of view. So it's purely an approach um, question whether you think about it um, as a negative or a positive. Um, I mean, in a similar way, like what we're doing here is 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 on a larger scale a separation of an approach of building beer from the bottom up rather than the top down. We say all of our grains we use are from here in New South Wales. Um, the hops that we use at the moment are, are international, but it's because. 
Hot Products Australia doesn't doesn't like making any noble um, varietals. Everything's punchy and and I've, thanks to our sponsors, we've <laughs> I've had the conversations with them, um, so they know it's funny. But I also don't buy very many hops, so I would be the worst supplier. <laughs> I mean, I'd be the worst person to talk about it. But we will. We're working with. Um, I am working with uh, some small hop growers here in New South Wales called Ryefield Hops, which we we would have talked about on the. Um, on the website before so we're hoping to get that bring bring that um bring bring hops as well into something that's state-based but the attempt uh, largely is to take you know malt from here um eventually hops from here yeast from here and make something that's drinkable rather than saying okay i want this style from whatever guideline you want to choose, um, which is the best malt from which maltster internationally that I need to buy that from, which is the best hop for that we need to buy that from, um, which yeast company from whatever international, we have no yeast labs in Australia, um, international labs do I need to buy the yeast from and, and reverse engineering the beer. There must be brewers out there listening to this who must think you've got balls as big as those barrels over there to just be able to have that sort of trust in your yeast. There are certainly brewers that have more trust than me, 100%, and I have hats off to them. Um, when you start doing it and you start working with it, mixed cultures or, 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 or grains from your, your own state, um, you just start to look at it in a different way. I mean, again, it's, it's an approach thing. Yeah, again, it's not a risk. I mean, maybe it changes, but how exciting would that be? And, I mean, how exciting is it that through the, you know, um, uh, trans- like, uh, transesterification um, in uh, Britannomyces long-chain fermentations that our Britannomyces that we have uh, creates entirely new esters that aren't on any sort of, haven't been mapped by anyone. I mean, there's, there's a sense of real creation that can happen with Mother Nature when you're working with something that um, you don't really know about. I mean, yeah, again, it's it's risky, but it's also really exciting. Tofi, you've... Um you know, coming to the Sydney market with something that's pretty out of the box and like, a, you know, some beer styles that most uh, people in Sydney are not going to be familiar with. Um, you know, a lot of them probably aren't even really familiar with, you know, fl- traditional flavoursome craft styles. OK, but with, the, with the exception of Pilsner, well pointed out, Prof. But, you know, what's been the, you know, after 12 months um, in business, like what's been the consumer reaction overall and, you know, has it been a real hand sell when people come in here to the venue? Um, Where do you sell most of your beer? They're the sorts of things I'm curious about. Easiest question to answer, I guess, is that first one, where do we sell most of our beer? Most of our beer is sold through independent liquor stores and restaurants across the country. Um, So that's our our whole sort of wholesale arm. Um, But the response... I think has been has been better than 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 what I would have expected. Uh, we are in the inner west. Um, I think specifically from the point of view of my attempt to not make our beers too sour or too funky or too anything. I want them to be balanced. I was worried there'd be a sort of a bit of a, a backlash against um, people that are buying, you know, almanacs or sour beers or stuff that's coming over from the states that's really aggressive. And that's not what I'm after. I felt that there might be, um, oh, you know, he's not doing the the true or intense style that didn't happen which was really great i think the australian consumer has a really great palate they're really interested in flavor um that's beer drinkers wine drinkers um 
Epicurean people in general um, and they've picked up on what we're doing and saying okay this is a flavor I haven't had before but I'd like to try it because um, they've been indoctrinated through our amazing food culture here our incredible um, wine culture here as well small variation th- and, and excitement throughout that I feel like there's a lot of consumers that aren't driven anymore by okay what's the number one restaurant in XYZ I have to go there instead they say actually there's something really good down the road that um, grows their own food um, and they make excellent food that you know for me to eat as well it might not be the number one rated we've I think the consumer is moving away from these sort of ratings um, and down to something that I think they're more um, that's more honest or something that's more um, authentic and um, that I feel the customer has has been has seen I guess in in our products um, so we're not seeing uh, in, in, in the brewery, I see a lot of people who are home fermenters, people who are making kombucha and, and, and all kinds of um, fermentations at their house. They're coming here because they want to learn more about fermentation. And they've been making mixed culture ferment beers for 15 years. I mean, before it was even a word in, in the brewing industry because they've applied fermentation techniques from their home into into beer, you know, and in other aspects in bread, in, into beer brewing. Um, we have a lot of people that, that, that do come here that they've had our beer somewhere else and they want to um, maybe try the rest of the very small range or have a have a look around and see what we do and that's been really great um, and there's a lot of people that come in and they've heard about us through something or from someone and people just saying these are really interesting beers you should come try them so they know nothing about it they've not they aren't craft beer drinkers and they they've just um, someone has told them that they themselves might be interested in the flavor and so they come in and um, I guess when you say hand sell sometimes that has a negative connotation in, in some um, sales worlds um, and that's not at all what we find it's a hand sell in that there's a lot of explanation and there's a lot of education that happens surrounding that that initial sort of taste of our beer um, but uh, luckily you know I think um, it's a credit to our staff who, who work here it's never a an, an difficult um, conversation for someone to have because people are coming with an open mind and that's all that we ask I mean our beer here is different 100% it's not going to taste like I mean besides the Pilsner actually no even that is not going to taste like what you get down at the pub um, and so uh, there is a lot of education, but people come here and they're willing to, to open their minds to that. So um, the the response has been good, and we're very happy with that. Um, and we just want to, to make sure that, that ongoing we continue putting out the standard of beer that, that, that people have come to know us for. Well, mate, your, your beers certainly don't taste like anything uh, that's readily available, and uh, but that Pilsner was just astounding. Like that, Could I have another one, please? Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, without giving too much away, I want to know whether, as a beer blender and where you release certain blends of your beer, how do you do something like into the Gab's Hottest 100? We entered the brands under their under their names, so it's gold and amber. Um, there's not a there's not a specific there's not a different icon for every single blend. I, I would hope that if over time the sort of idea about the blends themselves kind of disappears. Um, which blend you have, uh, this should be a consistent product. I mean, there are different iterations of the of the of the seller at that time, but it's 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 you know it's wildflower gold or wildflower amber. Um, so I do kind of want to. Th- that's I guess for the for the Gabs um, thing, and they very kindly added a new style category this year, um, Australian Wild Ale. So they're they're in their own style as well, which is good. So that's how you would find them. And and the Pilsner is only available here. 
Yeah, I don't even think I entered it into the Gabs. I think no. Um, we've sent one keg to uh, for an event um, somewhere, but that's uh, yeah. It's it's only going to be here. We, we need to look after it. Um, again, like I was saying, it's it's um. Prof has just started crying into his his remaining. Like like I said, it's it's no, it's difficult to make um, clean beers here, and and we don't have pressure tanks. We don't have a lot of the same um, equipment that a, a lot of clean breweries do. Um, so uh, if a if a keg, even though it's refrigerated, starts to get a little funky, I need to be able to pull that and say, okay, that's that's its shelf life, you know. Okay, once we keg that, it's got six weeks. We got six weeks to drink it, and that's it. And I don't have a problem with that because I'm not sending it to trade. I mean, if if, if a keg starts to go funky, we'll probably put it in barrel and see what happens to it. <laughs> but um, but like I, as, I mean, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pass something off as something that's not um ever. But but I I I wouldn't be confident sending it to an account and watching it you know sit in their hot cellar for however many weeks before they decide to tap it and then it's you know super foamy because there's been some secondary fermentation of Britannomyces inside of it I don't want those phone calls at night so <laughs> well Topher thank you very much for hosting us uh, on, on Radio Brews News thank you for having us in what is if you just dangled a few corks around here it could almost be the quintessential Australian shed um, a few it's barrels it's, the rope pulley is awesome. it's just a beautiful shed, and I encourage everyone to, to get down and drink the beers where they are, around the chimney, as the Germans like to say. But thank you for hosting us, and congratulations on Wildflower. All right, thanks for coming. Radio Brews News and Beer is a Conversation are made possible by our generous sponsors, Crime Malt and Brewpack, who are not only supporting this conversation, they're supporting the good beer industry and we thank them for that support. We also thank our Radio Brews News paid subscribers who donate a small amount each month to help keep this conversation going as well. Thank you for your support. If you like what we do and you would like to support the show yourself, you can find a link in the show notes where you can make a one-off or regular small donation. You can also help us by helping others to find us by leaving a review on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. Finally, you can join the conversation by sending some feedback, comments or suggestions to producer at bruisenews.com.au. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to joining you again for another Good Beer Conversation next week. Now's the time to roll